Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. There's two kinds of inflation, right? There's consumer price inflation, which is when the price of your milk goes up. And there's asset price inflation when the when the price of your stock goes up or your housing. Now, we love that kind of inflation. And we're definitely seeing asset price inflation, but we're not seeing consumer price inflation. As long as there's not consumer price inflation, there's no pressure to raise rates. I think wages are capped, energy is capped, food is capped. So those are the big three volatile inflation metrics. They're all in systemic deflationary kind of timeframes. So that's why we've not seen inflation in spite of the money printing. So it's this best of all worlds. We see our stocks going up, our asset prices rising, but we see consumer price inflation going nowhere. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. I'm Kenny Wolf, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Bob Frazier with us. He is the co-founder and principal at Aspen Funds, a residential mortgage fund. He worked in tech and in the stock market before starting his, his notes investing fund, so he's been through the ups and downs. Bob, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Great to be here with you guys. Well, thank you. You know, the way I like to start out is just to hear about your journey, how you got to where you are, and, and how you got to uh, note investing. All right. Well, it's kind of a long journey. I actually am a computer scientist, computer programmer from Berkeley and a 
grew a big company, a tech business, raised $44 million in venture capital, and that blew that thing up, 300 employees, won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2000, and then the whole thing got creamed in the in the dot-com rack in 2001. And so after that, I was kind of looking for something that really was not joined to the stock market, right? Something that, you know, anybody that's been around as long as we have, you know, you've been creamed and by the stock market and everybody really loves that liquidity, right? But liquidity comes at a great cost. Uh, you know, it's only as worth as what someone else is willing to pay for it at the moment when when everybody may be terrified. So, so I, I was looking for other kinds of kinds of investments, and with my partner, uh, stumbled across uh, note investing, and so we started that in uh, in about eight years ago, and started buying notes, and uh, been just steadily growing our business since then. Can you talk about note investing? I know there's performing notes, non-performing. There's workout situations. You know, I, I'm not sure all of our listeners understand exactly what buying into notes is. Can you just explain it, kind of uh, the 101? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so everybody gets the idea of buying a piece of real estate. And and so this is different. This is you buy the debt on the real estate. And so it's much, much simpler in some ways because I don't get calls from, you know, homeowners saying, hey, my toilet's plugged, my roof is leaking or whatever. I don't, because when's the last time you call your bank? You know, when you're when you have a problem with your house. So so it's a step back from the property a little bit, but we become the bank basically. So we buy the mortgage on these properties and we and we hold them. So so for cash flow. So it's it's much more scalable, much easier to manage in a lot of ways. So but but the management effort is different. So yeah, so we focus entirely on residential real estate and single family real estate. So so we buy literally home homeowner loans, basically, and we buy them at a discount. Um, so that's that's the business model. And really, as you pointed out, two strategies within that. One is by performing loans. So we're just we buy a note that's being paid on and we collect money, we collect basically the mortgage payments for cash flow and you know pay our investors. Now that's this that's super simple one, and it's just a passive you know, income strategy. And the other is we buy distressed debt. We buy notes that are not being paid and we rehab them. So it's the same thing as buying a, a house that is needs rehab. You fix it up, you repair it and you sell it, you flip it. It's exactly what that business is, except we don't touch the actual real estate. We repair and fix the paper, the note, and get it performing again or settled. And then we flip that note out. So those are two different models, both of which we operate. Okay. And, and when you say you, you turn the, the non-performing or the distressed loan into a performing note by fixing the paper, what's that process? How do, you, how do you fix that loan? Well, we basically reach out to the borrower and say, what do you want to do? And we have, a, we have seven exit strategies that we pursue. The most common is we re-perform the note and sell it. So we basically modify the loan, figure out what they can afford. Uh, they, may, they make a, a little good faith payment. They execute, you know, three trial payments to prove that they're on board. The note modifies at that point, and now it's considered a performing note, and so they get back on track. So a lot of borrowers, you know, they when the when the housing price crash or COVID crashes or something, people stop paying these debt. This debt, you know, they have a they have a crisis, a medical crisis or a family crisis or lose a job or something like that. But, but then they get back on track, so they'll start paying those notes again. So that's the number one strategy is to 
to start paying again with the modified terms. Um, another one is just they just pay it off. So that's our number two strategy is they just write a lump sum settlement, typically at a discount. And, uh, you know, we have, like I said, seven exit strategies. In the, the performing notes, who do you who do you buy those from? Because if they're did someone else rehab those? Because if you're buying at a discount, I'd have to think they'd have to be former non-performing notes. Most of them are former non-performing notes. So we we do that's the bulk of what we buy, but you know, we do buy ones that have never been non-performing as well. But yeah, so we we'll buy them from other note rehabbers. We buy them direct from banks sometimes. We buy them, we've bought loans from the FDIC. So we have a, we have a dozens and dozens of sources. And do you service those loans as well? We do not service the loans. We hire a servicer. So servicing is actually a very licensed, you know, heavily licensed, heavily regulated field. And uh, a lot of nuances, a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross. And so it's very, it's, you know, it's very smart to get people that are, that's their main expertise. And so we hire a mortgage servicer that's licensed in all 50 states and we board the loans with them. So, okay. so the servicer issues, you know, the 1098s, they issue the monthly statements, they do the RESPA requirements and all the things that are required, the legal requirements, and make sure the math is right so the borrowers are very, it's accurately accounted for. And how do the taxes work? In our community, we do some, we invest in funds of, it's typically like multifamily syndicated will buy a bunch of different properties. And, you know, one of the things that's been coming up lately is the state taxes if you're in three or four different states on one syndication, you may have to file different state tax returns. Is it the same on the the loan situation? No, no, we don't. Our investors don't have to file a different state tax returns, thankfully. So it's it's uh, it's different. I you know I'm not an accountant, but uh, I did have this conversation with my accountant a while back, and and basically we don't create nexus by owning a mortgage. So it's it it's it's, it's different than owning a property. Okay. And then when you're investors in your fund, do they get a K-1 or is it? They get a K-1. So it, it has a fair amount of long-term cap gains. So hopefully we'll continue to have long-term cap gains as a thing. And, uh, and it's definitely, you know, much better tax, you know, tax status. So, so yeah, you definitely want a K-1. You know, that's why, that's why, you know, this is really a mortgage REIT in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so one of the advantages is of a mortgage, of a mortgage, private mortgage rate is you get a K-1 instead of just ordinary income dividends. And then the payout is typically 9%. Is that a preferred return or is that is there any upside? There's no upside. It is a preferred return. Okay. So it's 9%? Paid monthly, yes. Okay. So when you sell a mortgage, once you get it performing, well, I guess in this fund, you, you only buy performing notes. So do you hold them into the term or do you sell these notes also? We've sold them a few times, but it's rare. Mostly we just hold. And these loans actually, one of the one of the great things about this kind of business. So our our performing our income fund, which is holds performing notes only, we have about uh, twelve hundred notes in there. But we have about eight percent of those notes that actually self liquidate every year. Okay, so whenever a borrower sells that home, we get paid off. Whenever the borrower refinances their their home, we get paid off. Um, so it's self-liquidating. So we have a we have a massive amount of liquidity coming into this fund on a quarterly basis. So we actually, you know, one of the advantages, one of the disadvantages of private investments is you don't have liquidity. One of the advantages of ours and unique is that we actually offer liquidity. So we take we can redeem our investors on demand 
pretty much. Uh, we've never missed yet. There's, there's obviously it's not there's no guarantee of liquidity, but we've never had a problem. And because we have we have a ton of liquidity every quarter. So every quarter we get these payoffs, and then you know we decide whether we're going to redeem an investor or go shop, you know, and buy more loans. And how do you underwrite the loans? What's the what's the process there? Just to give our listeners an idea of of how do you make sure or how can you determine what the new price is or the new payment amount for the for the borrower? How did you work individually with the borrower prior to purchasing the loan or just after? No, we underwrite purely from the metrics of the you know the, the data. And it's very, very sophisticated our underwriting. We're mathematicians and finance people. And so what we actually do is is come up with every single possible exit strategy for a note. So maybe maybe this is you know full payoff in year year 30, maybe this is a payoff in year five, maybe it's a default in year one. If it's a second mortgage, maybe it's a default in the senior mortgage in year one. So we come up with a whole sequence of possible scenarios for this loan, right? And then what we do is we do a cash flow, a, a we cash flow each of those possibilities, come up with a with a payment stream, and then we 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 basically uh, calculate a net present value for each of those cash flows. So what's what's that loan worth? Assuming it does that. So let's say they never pay, they default. What's that loan worth? Um, that kind of thing. And and so then we weight each of those based on our experience. So it's probabilistic discounted cash flow or net present value. So that gives us a weighted net present value. So this is super, you know, I may be finance speaking over everybody's head, but it is, it's just math. And it's just, it tells us what the intrinsic value of that note is on a mathematical basis, right? And, and, and that ends up being our cap. So we will never pay more than the intrinsic value for a note. And we typically underwrite to about a 30% default rate, assuming that the 30% of our notes go bad and default, which never happens. We're not even, we're not, we're not nearly close to that. So that's, that's our assumption. So it's extremely conservative underwriting. We also have a, a bunch of very unique metrics that we look at that, that other kind of banks and traditional finance people do not look at. One of the main things we look at is the, is the, the PITI to rent ratio. So in a lot of cases, almost all the loans that we buy, the, the PITI, the borrower payment, is significantly lower than equivalent rent. So the equivalent rent may be $1,200 a month, right, if they're renting this place, but they're only paying $800 a month. Well, that makes it super, super sticky, right? So literally, if they stop paying this and they, they lose this house, they're going to they're gonna, you know, have to pay more in rent than they were to pay to own this house. So, so we underwrite. Very, very, very sophisticated, and uh, we're very, very good at underwriting. And our and our number shows we have an eight-year operating operating history in this fund, with extremely excellent default metrics. How does it work with the person you're buying it from? So you you come up with this price, you negotiate terms with the buyer. Then what do you do with the um the homeowner once you buy it? Do you work out a deal with them and say? Here's the the new mortgage, or do you just continue servicing the mortgage that they were had the payment and everything they did before? So you've probably gotten a letter in your mail from your mortgage, you know, that says, "Hey, now go make your payments now to this new new servicer instead of this old servicer." Right? It's exactly what happens. It's called the RESPA letter, it's a welcome letter. 
So you get a goodbye letter from your old servicer, you get a welcome letter from the new servicer, pay your existing amount to the servicer. That's exactly what happens. So okay. they get a little letter in the mail, send send your money here now. <laughs> and, and you mentioned second mortgages. Those seem like that'd be much more complicated because you're, you're second in line and those are performing as well. But so those must have earlier been non-performing, which means maybe or maybe not the original mortgage was performing or non-performing. So What's the difference there when you invest in those? Yeah, well, second mortgages definitely adds a layer of complexity because you don't know how much equity you have. And so it's it's much, much different. We actually second mortgages quite a bit. And the reason is because as soon as I as soon as I said that, probably 80% of your listeners say, horrible, horrible. I'm don't ever want to talk to Aspen. And we love that. We absolutely love that because this stuff is sold at an unbelievable discount. Okay. It's the, it's the, it stinks discount and, and it's awesome. I love it when everybody hates what I'm doing um, because I get incredible prices on this and there's, there's no such thing as a bad loan to me. There's only a bad price. And so so what, what, what's the, so here, here's an example. Let's say there's a $300,000 house and there's a $100,000 first mortgage and $100,000 second mortgage. And then there's a hundred thousand in equity, right? So let's say that $100,000 first mortgage, it's a 3% loan and I can buy it at no discount. So I'm earning 3% on my, okay. Or I can buy the second mortgage. Well, it's a 7% coupon. And not only do I buy it, at, and, and I can actually get it, even though it's a $100,000 mortgage, I can actually get it for $75,000. So I've got, I've got almost a 10% yield on my money. Now, what happens if the bar stops paying? Well, I've still got $100,000 equity above me. What do I care? You know, is, am, I, am I any less safe? No. This is the risk metrics are, are almost the same. And the payout is three times more, you know, four times more. Yeah. So... And then, so furthermore, if that loan is, if that borrower refinances that house and I get paid off, I let, remember I paid 75 for it, but they owe me a hundred. So I make a $25,000 profit. So I make a 10% yield until I make a $25,000 profit. Okay. So which would you rather own? So there's my secret sauce. There's my spiel. And if you think I'm an idiot, please don't invest in Aspen <laughs> and please don't go buy those notes. So that the, the prices stay super low for me. Right. What's the competition for? So th- there's obviously less for the second mortgages. Are you bidding against other people or, or are there competitors on both first and seconds? There's always competitors. It is a, it is a fairly niche kind of market. So reperforming notes, uh, are, it's, it's fairly niche. They're, they're fairly hard to find. We end up being, you know, we end up bidding a bunch at different auctions. We also have some sellers that just sell to us exclusively. They've gone through the bidding process, realized that we are the best partner to work with. We pay very good prices and we're super fast to close and we're very painless, right? So we're the easiest partner. So they just come directly to us now. So we have a number of kind of exclusive relationships that sell exclusively to us, but we also are happy to go out and bid, uh, you know, on the auctions. Okay. And I have no idea what the scale of something like this is. Are you buying a few notes a day? Are you buying hundreds of notes, thousands of notes? What's the? Can you talk a little bit about the scale? We'll buy maybe 30 to 40 notes a month 
of generally, you know, we just had our biggest purchase ever last month. We bought 630 loans. So, so we, we love to buy big uh, when we can, but no, it's, you know, we, we're typically buying every month or every other month. Okay. And how has um, COVID affected your business? Because I know, you know, there's a lot of people in default, but there aren't a whole lot of foreclosures. How, how did the pandemic deal with your business and how do you think that'll change moving forward once we come out of those moratoriums? Well, the pandemic, we, we were really unsure what was going to happen. I mean, a lot of a lot of borrowers lost their jobs, obviously, but but um, surprisingly, our default rate it kind of ticked up slightly and then ticked right back down. Um, so it really has been a non-event, except that we've seen a huge amount of refis. So which are profit events for us. So meaning we, our loans get paid off at at a, at a profit, and you know, and if and it's a little bit of a mystery, but you know, actually, as you as you mentioned, you know, as you know, I do an economic newsletter every every quarter, and one of the very surprising things, you know, and I would I would encourage your listeners if they want to go to AspenFunds.us, our website, and click on the resources link and watch the watch the economic forecast. But the economic is crazy. What's happened is if you look at the at the uh, Income per capita, it's hockey-sticked. Income per capita, income per capita, including the people who lost their jobs, have gone up enormously. And if you look at net worth, hockey-sticked, it's gone up enormously. If you look at its savings rate, it's hockey-sticked. If you look at debt service, it's dumped. People are have paid down debt. So, so the average U.S. consumer is far, far healthier than they were a year ago. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's the number. It's you can't, you know, you can't make the stuff up. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing lots of refinances, lots of, you know, lots of, you know, we're getting paid off and and generally a high performance. So I, I think the people, the multifamily investors might be having a worse time than me. You know, although I'm not seeing a lot of slow payment on the rents, I'm, but I'm not in that business. I think it could be that homeowners are maybe in a little bit better financial shape. Maybe they're, they're not the low-end workers. You know, they're not working in the bars and restaurants. Type deal, they're not the retail workers. The, the homeowners are not that guy. So they're a little bit, you know, kind of um, up the employment ladder a little bit. So I, th- I think that we're having far less time. And certainly all the mortgage, across the mortgage space, you're seeing the mortgages are not, there's there's not a lot of challenges. You're, you're seeing a forbearance numbers out of Black Knight and others are are higher. But remember, those forbearances are very easy to get. So you don't you just say, hey, I want I don't want to pay my mortgage for a while. They say, okay, you know. <laughs> so right. it doesn't mean they don't have the money. It just means they want they want to get a freebie. So we're seeing the mortgages being healthy. I think much healthier than the than the renters are. So really, bottom line is we've kind of sailed through everything. Um, in fact, setting records, it's not just surviving, it's better than it's ever been. And do you expect that foreclosures and, and some non-performing notes will increase in the near future once the, uh, you know, we're kind of on the other side with all the, like you said, the the forbearance programs? I will see, you know, the data is not yet there. So I can't wait to see the data as it comes out, as the as the forbearance programs kind of come to an end. You know what happens. I'm sure we will see a raft of new defaults. I mean, is it going to be huge? It's not going to be huge, but it's going to be more than nothing. So I don't think it's going to be anything like 2008. 
kind of crisis to them, you know, that, that area. But, but I think it is going to be something as people just, they've got too far behind, they can't make it up. And uh, so we'll see that stuff hitting the market. It'll probably be a year before the, the notes hit, those kind of notes hit the market. And so you would buy those, the, the non-performing ones, you would put in your non-performing fund. And then I imagine there's a wave after other people like you that are buying non-performing notes, they have to rehab those. And then so after that, they become performing again, and then they would be eligible for your, for your current fund. Yes. So you mentioned your um, economic forecast on the website, and I definitely will put that in the show notes. But can you talk a little bit about what you see for the second half of 2021 and, and the years to come economically? Yes. I actually made a forecast. I made my forecast for the year in December. I said we are going to see a barn-burning economy. Okay, We are going to see it face-ripping strength in the economy. So very different than a lot of economists were saying. And now they're all saying, yes, base ripping, you know, and we're seeing it. And and the reason I said that is if he, he, I looked at the numbers, you know, I'm purely a data guy. Okay. I, I don't care about your opinion. I don't care about, I don't even care about my opinion. I, I want the data to speak. Right. And so I do, I download the data and, and re- refresh the data, then interpret the data every, every year. But I predicted a a barnstorming economy. And the reason is for all the reasons that I just said. So you're you're seeing a super cash flush consumer, super cash flush. You're seeing debt service at the at an all-time record low. You're you're seeing net worth at an all-time record high, per capita income, all-time record high. Um, so you're so you're seeing a very, very flush consumer at the same time, a cooped up consumer. So, you know, as COVID uh, lockdowns exited, you're going to see people massively, massively spend. That means travel, means go to out to eat, means buy cars. Um, so it's exactly what you're seeing. So I, I think we're going to continue to see throughout the rest of the year an, an actually screaming economy. And I'm I'm very hopeful they do not pass the stimulus because we, we do not want it right now. It's actually, you know, it, you know and I've argued against, I, I've argued that inflation is not a concern right now. And I have an old, I have an analysis of why. Again, on the website, I did a little fifteen-minute economic presentation of why inflation is not a problem. We are seeing transitory inflation, but it's primarily due to supply chain disruptions versus fundamentals. But the, the economy is coming up to full capacity. So when the government prints money and spends it into an economy where it's under capacity, right? If you're hiring an unemployed person or you're you're, you're ordering widgets in a factory that's at 50% capacity, it's not inflationary, right? Hiring an unemployed person or you're buying a widget from a factory that's shut down or more or less shut down, it's not inflationary. But when, when you spend money into an economy that is at full employment or an economy that is at full capacity, it is inflationary. So so that's, we are basically at full capacity right, right now and, and full employment, um, you know, pretty close. And so I, I I do not think they should they should pass the stimulus packages. Fun as that is for everybody to get free money, it's really a bad idea right now. Uh, and hope hopefully they're hopefully our wonderful government leaders will uh, you know have some common sense and not do that. But so we we will see a we will see a booming economy and booming investments. How long do you think that uh, that run will be? I know that's impossible to say, but you know, are you talking six months, a couple years? It's we, we're going to have a pretty strong economy, in my opinion, for the next couple of years. 
does depend, of course, if the if the Fed gets nervous and decides to raise rates. You know that 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 could that could dampen the party. But I think we're going to be quite strong for a while. And what do you think about interest rates? And you mentioned that. Do you think the the Fed will hold where we are? Or do you think they'll feel like they need to increase interest rates at some point in the near future? Well, there's kind of been a paradigm change. And back in the Volcker days, you know, the 80s or the 90s, there was the Fed was very much guarding against high inflation and watching against the, the economy overheating. And you see that that kind of scenario has very much gone by the wayside re- recently. And so what's happened during the during the great financial crisis, the 2008 crisis, you saw a massive printing campaign. The, the Federal Reserve printed, I think, four point seven trillion dollars in T-bonds. And I, for one, and all the hard money crowd, which I was at that time, and I'm no, more, no longer a hard money guy, and meaning the Austrian school of economics, you, they all predicted hyperinflation. You print money, hyperinflation, well, it didn't happen. <laughs> and so that's when I read and revisited everything, and I've really become more of an MMT person right now, MMT guy. And as I just said, is if you print money into, a, into an economy that is at massive undercapacity, it is not inflationary. It just isn't. So we, we've seen, you know, a pretty big, big increase there. And, uh, you know, and it hasn't been a problem. So what's happened is the, is the Federal Reserve has realized that they can print money without causing inflation. Okay, So guess what? And so they've had these easy money policies, really, I mean, since 2009. And these incredible, and, and how much inflation does it cost? Nothing. And so guess what? They're not going to change this paradigm until it hurts. Right. It's free money. What politician is going to not want that? What, you know, let's let's print money. Stock market goes up. Housing prices. Everybody's happy. We we have inflation that is there's two kinds of inflation. Right. There's consumer price inflation, which is when the price of your milk goes up. And there's asset price inflation when the when the price of, you know, your stock goes up or your housing. Now, we love that kind of inflation. So and we're definitely seeing asset price inflation, but we're not seeing consumer price inflation. And so as long as there's not consumer price inflation, there's no pressure to raise rates. And and I and I don't believe and I believe I've also done a, a whole economic review of why we're not we haven't seen inflation. Well, we have a systemic, long-term systemic deflationary forces in place. For example, the oil price. Oil price is just capped. And the reason is, you know, you know, you know who the who the number one uh, the number one producer of oil in the world is right now, Jim? I think it's the U.S., isn't it? It is. It's the U.S. Well, why is that? We were. It was dead. We were. We 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 gave up that title in the seventies. Why we were gaming? Well, fracking. And you know, when they finish an oil well, seventy percent of oil is still in the ground. It's just oily rocks and sand. And so fracking has unlocked all this. Well, what happens when fracking hits Saudi Arabia? What happens when fracking hits Siberia? So the issue is this thing has been solved with technology. Not to say we want to continue to burn fossil fuels ad infinitum. But the, the technology is there. So as soon as oil prices get high enough to support it, you're going to see this technology rolled out. So, so oil prices are capped. If you look at you look at uh, wages, that's another biggie. You know, energy is a is a big inflationary component. Wages are are a big inflationary component. But there's huge disinflationary forces in wages, you know, in automation is what's happening now. All these customer service jobs have been have been replaced and eliminated by web and automation. You know, you're now you can now go into a kiosk and order McDonald's. You know, no person is doing this. You are seeing massive, massive 
automation happening across every part of the employment landscape. And fewer fewer workers are doing more jobs and, and more computers are doing jobs. And it's and then add in the fact that, you know, with the globalization, you're seeing an American worker competing with a Mexican worker uh, or a Chinese worker. So those jobs are just capped in uh, in wages. So I think wages are capped, uh, energy is capped, food is capped. And so those are the big three volatile uh, kind of inflation metrics. They're all in systemic deflationary kind of timeframes and, and you know, the, the system. So that's why we've not seen inflation. And in spite of the money printing, instead we see asset price inflation. So it's so it's this best of all worlds. We see our stocks going up, we see our our asset prices rising, but we see consumer price inflation going nowhere. And it's why all the all the politicians are worried about this disparity in you know the rich versus the poor. The rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer. Well, that's because the the, the rich own things, and stuff is getting more valuable, including stocks and housing and real estate, et cetera. And uh, so that's the whole reason. It's, you know, the gains are primarily an ass. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I, saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly, and that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast, and it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So you mentioned MMT, which just so everyone's on the same page is modern monetary theory. So I, I want to go back to that in a second. But you you mentioned that wages and oil and food were three places that you didn't see inflation or there's deflationary forces there. Can you talk about what the deflationary forces with the food production are? Yeah, you're seeing a one globalization of the food supply. So, you know, there's as much grain coming out of Brazil and uh other places, but but it's food tech. So we're seeing right now, for example, in Brazil, there's three harvests per year, three harvests per year. They've actually gotten crops that are faster growing, et cetera. So you're seeing, you know, I have a couple charts that I that I could show you. Uh, the hectares of arable land going down, in other words, the, the amount of farmland is going down. 
and the, 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 the production per hectare is massively spiking. So literally, our farmland is being far more productive than it ever has been in history. And it's due, due to just advances in technology. Tech, technology is paying dividends everywhere in our society, in, including food production. So we're seeing just enormous gains in, in food production, enormous productivity gains, and, and uh, you know, uh, price drops in food because of this. And then back to the mon- modern monetary theory, that it's a difficult concept to understand, but what is your opinion on the spending and the deficits? Is that just going to, we don't have to worry about deficits ever now, or is there going to come a time? You know, you hear the politicians talking about we're, we're doing this to our grandkids and all that. So is there ever going to come a time where we're going to need to pay that off or pay that down? There's a great, uh, you, ever, you ever read the book? You know, you're obviously very, very in tune with economics and economic thinking. So I appreciate that. That's awesome. There was a book called This Time is Different. Did you ever read that book? It's by uh, uh, Carmen Reinhardt and whatever Rogoff. They're two Harvard economists. This time is different. Well, basically, they studied 800 years of financial crises in, I think, 165 countries over 800 years. And they studied all the financial crises that have ever happened in, in, the, in the universe and, and discovered they're all very similar. And so based on that book, by the way, I made a whole bunch of predictions about what was going to happen in 2008. It turned out to be right. Well, those guys wrote another paper. It wasn't a book, but they wrote a paper on on what happens to large deficits. Did you did you know America's uh, debt to GDP ratio was actually over 100 in the past? And in fact, we didn't default on it. That was after World War II. It was we didn't default. And you know what happened? How did it get paid off? Well, it turns out a little bit of inflation pays off the debt. So so. It, so basically, you inflate away the debt where it becomes irrelevant. And uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I, have, a, I have a slide somewhere that, that talks about, you know, at a 6% rate of inflation, which we're not close to that, but just pulling the number out, that deficit is decreased. It's inflated away, you know, 80% in something like 12 years. So so the truth is, most of our most of our debt in the past, and in fact, most high debt to GDP ratios in the world have been paid off or paid down, not by making payments, but by by simply a, some little bit of inflation. It doesn't have to be hyperinflation. And and so so that's really the main way it has to be paid. But I'm I'm definitely of the of the you know of the anti-fear crowd, you know, of of the national deficit and uh, the national debt rather. Okay. And I'm I'm not concerned about it at all. And the reason is you know, as I pointed out, as I mentioned earlier, so in 2008, 2009, the federal printed, I believe it was $4.7 trillion in, in money to buy bonds. They bought government bonds. And so all those bonds go on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And had once that happened, they could have said, okay, forgiven. So the, the, the central bank owns the U.S. debt, three points, and they could simply have disappeared it. They chose not to. They chose to pay it off. But literally, had they would they had, had they done that, you know, what would have changed nothing. And so that's when my thinking. I realized that okay, our our whole the whole old school economic thought is really outdated. And and that the the truth is with seniorage, you know, just the right to print money. That that there's there's it's different. If you have seniorage, it's a lot different. Running your financial world is a lot different than in personal financial world, right? Where you know you can't spend more than you more than you make. It's very different when you can print money. So so 
definitely, I'm, I, I have no concern about the federal deficit, none at all. Okay, oh, that was great. And, you know, I can't have someone like you on the show without asking the Bitcoin question. Ah. So can you talk about your thoughts on Bitcoin, where it's going, what, what's going to happen there? Absolutely. I'm actually somewhat of an expert in cryptos. Uh, as a, I'm actually a Berkeley computer scientist, remember. So oh, yeah. I, I've studied all, 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 the, all the cryptos. And of course, generally, they should be avoided like the plague. Okay. <laughs> and, and so... So the uh, you know most of the, most of the cryptos it's purely it's just like the dot com boom. It's like oh, I got an e commerce site. I'm selling you know t shirts from my home and it's worth billions of dollars. You know so it's 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 vapor. Now Bitcoin is different. So the the problem with cryptos is the promise is a whole lot lot greater than the actual utility. Right? What is the utility of a Bitcoin? You know. You got a pocket full of Bitcoin. What can you really do with it? Now, yeah. it, now, if, now if you're if you're a criminal, that's super valuable, right? And ability to move money around without 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 a trace. Although even that's limited because because Bitcoin and all these cryptos, they're not anonymous. They're pseudonymous. So I can actually track your wallet has an ID, and I can track every transaction you've ever done. I just don't know it's Jim Jim Python. Okay, I but I I can I can see everything in your wallet. The ledger is actually public, and that's the whole that's the way cryptos work. The ledger is public, so I can see every transaction in and out of your wallet. It, you know, so it's pseudonymous. So people think it's anonymous. It's not. So all you got to do is to mine this mine this ledger, and you can come up with a massive amount of data. But but so the issue with cryptos and Bitcoin in particular is it's is it's not there's not a lot of utility. There's nothing to actually do with it. But Bitcoin in particular, they're running out of Bitcoins, right? And so I think they, I think there's some, I've seen estimates as high as, as 25% of all Bitcoins have been lost. So the thing is, if you have, if you have, a, you have a Bitcoin key and you lose that key, there's no way to recover it. And those Bitcoins literally go, they never can be accessed. It's, you know, they were vaporized, though they can never be unlocked. And so, all these guys that bought Bitcoin 20 years ago when it was a joke, well, then they had a hard drive crash. It's gone. And 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 then the miners. There's no. I think and I think we're right at the end. There's only only another hundreds of thousands of bitcoins that can be mined ever, and then it's done. So mathematically, it's not going to be possible to mine any more bitcoin. So that so what happens is bit, there's no more bitcoin being created. And so I, I personally, I, I said. Uh, I think I did my economic forecast five years ago, and I said Bitcoin is going to go. There, I, I said it's going to go with within five five to ten years. It's going to hit two hundred fifty thousand. So it is because there's no there's no supply, and if there's any kind of demand at all, which there will be, it's going to go up. So so bottom line, it's it's a dumb investment, but it's probably going to go up. And uh, and it's you know the, the the more exciting the more exciting crypto is Ethereum. It's the only one I'm actually I actually would recommend. And uh, Ethereum, because Ethereum, what what few people realize is when the, when when Vitalin invented Ethereum, he actually invented a crypto infrastructure. So almost all tokens out there are built on top of Ethereum. And because so so in order to build your own your own blockchain. You have to have miners across the globe that set, that dedicate computer servers to running your thing. So if you're going to start that up, you, it's hard to convince people to do that. 
So what happened is if you build on top of Ethereum, you inherit all that infrastructure, all those miners, all, and you can build any token you want on top of Ethereum. So he actually built the Roman roads of cryptos. Now, Ethereum in its current form is pretty cool. As a computer scientist, I kind of geek out on it and love it. It's actually, I can <laughs> talk about it for what, what's so cool about it, but you know, there's a lot of plenty of issues too. But the very interesting thing is there's Ethereum 2.0 that is coming out and it's going to, going to change everything um, from proof of work to proof of stake. So in the past, you have these, these big mining, these big mining computers that are solving these very, very difficult mathematical problems and taking massive amounts of electricity and everything. It's got, that's called proof of work. We, in order to earn a Bitcoin, you have to prove that you did the work. You solved this mathematical problem to, to proof of stake, which is not going to require you to dim the lights of an entire city, you know, to mine a Bitcoin. And the Ethereum 2 is now going to proof of stake. And it's going to be proof of stake means that you are an investor in Bitcoin. So all, or sorry, Ethereum's. So if you have Ether, you have stake in Ether and you are awarded, awarded more Ether based on the size of the Ether you own. So it's called proof of stake. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be much more eco-friendly, which, you know, so you're not going to be, you know, burning coal and power plants in order to, to, to mine this. And that's going to come out in probably another six months to 18 months sometimes. They're rolling it out. And if all the Ethereum 1 owners automatically be rolled into Ethereum 2. So Ethereum is, is the best the best bet. It's, it's If you want to bet on blockchain, it's the best way to go because you're betting on the infrastructure. Now, will it, will it go ultimately to the, you know, to the nth degree? Will it last 50 years? I, I probably, I doubt it, right? But it's got a good, as good a chance of anything. But probably the ultimate blockchain uh, out there has not yet been invented. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's, we'll see, you know, you're, if you, if you buy Ethereum now, you're probably buying MySpace, you know, and <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I'd say it's going to be a bad investment for the short term. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but the, the proof of work versus proof of stake. I know the Bitcoiners are very much against the change because they say if you keep changing the rules, you can't have, you know, a real monetary system, which is what they think Bitcoin is going to be. Now, it sounds like, you know, from your perspective, Bitcoin is the demand because the supply is decreased or there's not as enough supply. Demand is going to keep going up and it's just pure speculation. But the Ethereum has more utility because you can program on top of it. Is that what you're thinking? That's definitely. It. And, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a dinosaur. It, it, it has no future. I'll just say that out straight out. It has no future. You know, the Bitcoin transactions are limited to something like five transactions per second across the entire globe. Yeah, that's not going to work for a monetary system, I don't think. think. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And and so and you can't fix it. It's just a freaking dinosaur. And uh, and every time you fix it, so they made Bitcoin split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash right a while back. So this is when all the programmers get together and say, "Hey, we're going to we're going to make a new kind of code, mining code for Bitcoin." But everybody has to agree. Well, no one agrees. So this is a bunch of this is you know, the Wild West. So a whole bunch of miners went off and created Bitcoin Cash, but it's not Bitcoin. So you can have, it's called a fork, a hard fork. And you can have lots of these forks where a programmers decide to create their own thing. And that's what they, so they might do that. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a broken technology. It, it just has, it has real problems in, in the proof of work concept as well as 
as the number of transactions per second. I think Visa right now is processing a, a 50 or has capacity to do 1,500 transactions per second, the Visa number. You know, if you can't compete with Visa, you certainly can't compete with cash transactions or anything else. So, so Ether is, is, is closer to Visa, Ethereum, but still not there. Ethereum 2.0 is going to be better. And that's why one of the reasons I say that I, I just I think we probably haven't seen the one that's actually going to going to be the real one yet, you know, and actually going to go somewhere. Certainly not going to be the Chinese one, you know. <laughs> Everybody's got a new a new crypto, you know. No, this this was fascinating though. You know, I, I told you we'd go thirty minutes, and we've exceeded that by uh, just a little bit. But <laughs> I, I I love the conversation. Um, I really appreciate it. The last question I usually ask is, uh, what's a, a podcast that you listen to that you really like? One, two, three podcasts, if you're a podcast guy. We're, we're launching our own brand new one. It'll be out in the next couple of weeks. It's called Invest Like a Billionaire. So look it up. Um, it's really you know highlighting the difference. Most small investors don't invest like the billionaires invest. And the difference, what the difference of billionaires invest, they invest in alternative investments. And this is hedge funds, private equity, and and real estate. And so obviously most of your guys are in real estate. And so they're usually 50% or more invested in alternatives. And so we're it's really about increasing awareness of different alternatives, how to find them, how to vet them, and how to classify them, that kind of thing. So that sounds great. And that that does fit right in with our community because that's what we're always doing. It always drives me crazy that people call it alternative investments when it's really, you know, that's that's to me that's investing in the stock market and all that stuff to me seems like more speculation, but that's probably a conversation for another day. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Jim, it sure have been great to be with you. And uh, you're, you're very, very astute, very sharp as far as your questions you've asked. So very much a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed this podcast and uh, we'll probably have to revisit it again because uh, the more we talk, the more fascinating it gets. So Thank you very much for being here. And uh, and if users or listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Our website, Aspen, like the tree, funds, F-U-N-D-S dot U-S. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And again, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. It was fascinating having that discussion with Bob, especially the economic chat we had at the end. So I'll keep this short because our episode did run a little bit long because, again, I was so interested in what we were talking about. Regarding the note investing, I really like allocating a portion of my capital to notes. You get a steady return. You don't get much upside, but the liquidity and the cash flow definitely make up for it. Regarding the the economic conversation we had, I love hearing Bob talk about inflation. We've got some pretty good points about why perhaps the worry is overblown. There's some factors that are causing deflation. And there's some factors like money printing that are causing inflation. So he's not too worried that the inflation will take over. I love talking about MMT and Bitcoin. So we'll definitely have him back, dig into those a little bit deeper. But had a great conversation with Bob. And as I said, we will definitely do it again. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. 
If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.